When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Fright School. Are you ready? Class is in session. Welcome back to Fright School. Hello, Joe. Hello, Joshua. <laughs> Man, I've got a lot of energy for somebody who stayed up very late last night and then got up very early this morning to clean up the reason I was up so late. <laughs> <laughs> Why were you up? Which, if I just leave it, that's really ominous. But no, we threw our annual Halloween party. Last evening, as you well know, because I believe I saw you there at some point. Yes, I was there in my spiritual and corporal manifestations. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, it was a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, I got up early before because it gets too hot and I don't like to leave like all the chairs and all the food and all that stuff like kind of like sitting out. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I got up like at seven ish to get stuff cleaned up so i'm very yeah i'm like delirious i think like i'm probably gonna take try to lay down and take a nap but no it was super fun it was a great party i had a great good time it was good to see folks and eat good food and i was really happy with my playlist the music i played it was such a weird mix but i really wanted to give goth dance club vibe (laughs) and you did it was a really good playlist i want you to share it with me because it was like the perfect like that's the kind of halloween music halloween party music that apple should be putting out there for people yeah yeah it took me a while to collect all the bits and pieces for it so big shout out to boy harsher that band i really dig them a lot and there was quite a lot of their music on it and then it was out from there like i would I would listen to their songs and then be like, okay, what else sounds like this? And so I started culling and pulling like from all of this different music Mm -hmm. and looking for these like dark waves playlists and um, like some new wave, like dark wave stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, it came together. I was very happy with it. And then I sat for a couple of hours over the week listening and like moving things around and shifting because I didn't want to shuffle it. (laughs) It was like, I wanted Uh it to flow a certain way. So yeah, it was fun. But and we only had one casualty. And sorry, again, visual medium being what it is. You can only see this on over on Patreon, but we lost the gate for the Hocus Pocus house. Oh, Somebody no. knocked it off the table. 
And the funny thing is, is I was like, I can't even put it together because I didn't do it. Joe did. Yeah. Joe built the gate. And so I'm looking at it like, I'm not even sure where all the pieces go. So I'm going to have to get out the book and try to put it back together. It's not too bad. It's in chunks. So it can be wow generally put back together. That must yeah, have I happened came. before I came or after I left. It was a whole thing. I came in the house and like my friend, our friend was sitting on the floor in the foyer area, the whatever, the opening part of the house. And I was like, what the hell's going on? Did you fall? What's what is happening? And then it was like, oh no, knock the Lego thing off. And so then I was like, at first I was like, oh my gosh, the house. But it was just, it was the gate. So it's all okay. It's all here. Thankfully they were like, everybody was scouring the floor for like errant Lego pieces. But yeah, so that was really the only casualty. There were no, usually you throw a party, like a few glasses get broken, you know, knock on wood. So Mm -hmm. thankfully this is all stuff that can be put back together. Wonderful. Again, I don't know if there's any pieces that got damaged. It's whatever. It it adds character, I would think, to a creepy haunted house set. (laughs) Yes, exactly. If it's not a little broken, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was a really good time. And I'm glad that you came. It was good to see you. It was really good to see um, our favorite final girl, Ashley, came as Megan. She looked amazing. Mm. Oh, my gosh. That costume was great. It made me be like, oh, my God, do I have time to find a Megan costume in a plus size men's? (laughs) It was quite delightful. I, oh, my gosh, I would love if you dressed as Megan. I think that would be fucking delightful. You in like full wig and oh, could you get some like creepy blue contacts? That'd be awesome. Yeah, like the eyes. It's like the yeah weird. <laughs> I think that could be a really good good choice. It will never be as terrifying as your Sarah Palin, but yeah, um, <laughs> that's true. Know. That's true. <laughs> Oddly enough, and this is related to stuff we're going to talk about this morning. But that year <laughs> that I did Sarah Palin, I had another costume that I went with my our former guest of the show, a friend of the pod, Eve. I went with her to Rich's for their Halloween night because she really wanted to enter herself into the Halloween costume contest. Oh, cool. And she did win. (laughs) She had a really good time. She did win. But I went as Magenta from Rocky Horror. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing the pictures of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I wasn't in heels. I was was in like like new black new balances because i was like she's a domestic so needs to be comfortable (laughs) yes a domestic yeah yeah i remember pictures from that you look so good yeah more drag from you joe i think that's the i think that's what we're learning like maybe joe and drag is the way to go that's what i've heard the moment i put my wig on it's over for you hoes Oh, <laughs> you there. Sorry, sorry. Now I'm like, I'm seeing all these Legos here. I've got my little Winifred and Sarah and Mary. There they are. Oh, it's amazing. It fell down, but it didn't knock their stuff out of their hands. <laughs> Singing a song about children. Yeah. Come, <laughs> little um, children. Anyways. Yeah, so speaking of Rocky Horror, we had our Rocky Horror Picture Show showing in collaboration with Lambda Archives, which is a an organization here in San Diego that works to preserve queer history. And obviously, this is still like LGB, LGBTQIA plus all the things. History um, Month. <laughs> History Month. I, yes, I was getting there again. I t- Joe, you are so funny. I was I was telling Jeffrey, I was like. I just, I guess Joe just needs to follow me everywhere to just 
prompt things that I'm just about to say. <laughs> it's it made me think, did you watch though. Beep? No. <laughs> oh, so you got to watch Beep because Tony Hale and Julia Louis-Dreyfus, they're so funny, but they're, because he's like her, always in her ear telling her stuff. So when she, when they go places to for events, he'll be like, oh, that's so-and-so senator. His daughter is blah, blah. That's not his wife. So he's like telling her, he'll be telling her all this stuff. And sometimes he says things that are very, she's I have large moving objects covered. <laughs> like sometimes he tells her things that's just, yeah, I got it. And that's how it was on the panel. You're just like... Frank is a transvestite. <laughs> Talk about that. It's they're, a musical. They're aliens. <laughs> no. I, but I was just like, okay, like I got this, Joe. Thank you. But anyways, yes. What's it on the social media? Legibitiqua. The Legibitiqua. <laughs> Legibitiqua Le, plus a month. A history Can month. you do it with a French accent? No. That what would it be? be? It would be... Le je petit quoi. Je, you'd have to have a je in there. Le je petit quoi. <laughs> petit que. <laughs> Something. I don't know. Anyways. Le je petit quête. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, I think you said little bitty cat. But anyways, back to the point. Yeah, so with Lambda Archives and, of course, the Diversionary Theater hosted us. And they were so generous. And because the event sold out, they, uh, the ticket that we had and then we wanted to make room for even more people to show up and try to get tickets so they moved us to their nice big theater space they set up a big projector it was like a real film showing it was so fun Um, yeah screening but yeah so i just i'm so glad and thankful to everybody who came helped us raise over a thousand dollars for lambda archives so then continue to do work and Hopefully it leads to a, a new kind of cool partnership with them. We're, we've already been chatting about some other things we'd like to do to support them. And it's a great, it's a really smart partnership. We should have uh, made it years ago. <laughs> That's okay. It's never too late. It's yes. never too late to be doing what we can for our local orgs. And, and big thanks to you, Joe, because I think you're the one who really helped bring this all together. Oh, thank you, Joshua. I appreciate that. I, yeah, I you, I get the reputation of not being good at self promotion, but when it counts, it I'm I can make it work. <laughs> this is true. That's true. When it counts, again, me staffing you in your ear. Mention the merch. Mention right. my, we have QR codes. Mention. That's Joshua. true. My girl, you had the microphone too. You say something. <laughs> I'm trying to be over here having an academic conversation about Rocky Horror with the with our guests. Yeah, and I'm all like, buy the merch! Available on iTunes! Yeah. But it was such a fun event. I had such a great time chatting with everybody, meeting the, the people who work at Lambda. A lot of people from like Pride were there. Uh, a lot of... There was definitely a few friends that came, but this was, it was cool to go to an event where it's it wasn't just like our friends coming. Yeah. <laughs> It was like a real public thing. It was really, it was super fun. <laughs> it was a veritable who's But I was that? glad to see friends too. <laughs> it was a who's that? It was a creme de la creme of the creme de la femme. <laughs> yes. Ah, there we go. Exactly. But yeah, I just, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how it came out because I know that they filmed, Lambda Archives filmed some of the event or the entire um, panel, I'm sure, which again, I was so glad that people like stuck around because we had like over a hundred people, right? At the actual screening. Mm-hmm. And again, part of that's also, I guess we're there and we're doing our thing, but Rocky Horror kind of does sell itself to some degree. Yeah. Uh, credit to the film. It was a good choice. 
But still, we had over 100 people show up and I'd say half of them stayed for the panel, which I thought was like a big win to me. Yeah, I figured we'd have maybe a handful of people would stick around just because I've been to enough things of screening. Sometimes people are like, oh, I'm just here for the movie. I'm going to go. Um, so that was also very nice to have an audience that was very engaged in talking about the movie. And again, that I because I worried about people turning on us because we are mm. trying to have it was a short panel. So we didn't really have time to get super deep into problematic things within the Rocky Horror Picture Show as a cultural artifact. But having at least a moment to recognize, I was just like, are people going to turn on us? But that's why I wanted to, that's why I called it the Oreo cookie. But we're going to, we're going to talk good things. We're going to say something bad. And then we're going to say good things again. <laughs> so we can all. <laughs> it's a movie that I love too, despite the stuff in it that can be a little woof. Yeah. Woof. <laughs> And again, we we as queer spectators of it, we can hold these are non-binary situations, right? We can hold the problematic on its face problematicness of the content of what it's saying about trans people or not saying about trans people or how it is not may have or have did not include trans people in the conversation. Frank is an abuser. But we can also we can have a we can have a nuanced conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's based on these sorts of like hammer horror pictures and other. So it's like Mm -hmm. we we love to stand a villain and especially somebody camp. And um, I get it. Like there's I don't think we were going to talk anybody out of loving the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And that wasn't the endeavor. That's not what we were trying to do anyways. It's just having these ongoing conversations about queer media. To that end, just another shout out to our friend Heather O. Petricelli and her book coming out, Queer for Fear, Horror Film and the Queer Spectator. She had sent very kindly, sent us some advanced reading from it. And it's really great. And I want to encourage people to, to, to order it. We'll keep putting the link in our um, show notes. And it's in our newsletter, which you can sign up at our link tree in the description. Find us at Fright School on all the things as usual. But she had, because she had sent us, I was able to use some of the book to inform a little part of the panel. And I just really appreciated that. And again, reading through what she sent. It's so good. I'm so excited about this book coming out. And yeah, I guess I, that was just a plug. <laughs> plug up Palooza. Yeah, I we're I'm really excited as well. We can uh, once it comes out, we will will probably do a big episode and promote it and everything. But yeah. please go and purchase it again, folks. It's a textbook. It's very yeah. it's giving textbook. It's a dissertation, but it is so well written and again it's immediately a part of our foundational texts here our required reading on fright school (laughs) yeah no i could totally see using this book if i did ever decide to actually try to pursue something teaching in in this realm that that would absolutely be a great textbook and i hope that it does well because it'd be really nice that they released were able to release like a paperback uh, version as well i know that's a thing to be able to, to do both to operate in those spaces to make it a little bit more accessible mm-hmm. but it, yeah you're right i think at the end of the day it is a textbook like i could see i could definitely see using what i've read so far uh, in in a class 
again, I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole other podcast. You could be just on that book. <laughs> All right. Anything else? week we did so much we did a lot i really loved the fall of the house of usher have you finished it yet no girl when have i had we are planning to watch two episodes today after this that is the plan while we continue to try to like slowly get the house together but yeah so i'm very excited about it i'm seeing a lot of good things mike flanagan is i don't know he's the new somebody yeah, like, like Ryan Murphy. He's become that. Like we we keep looking forward to like his shows, like we might maybe used to do with Ryan Murphy. Now with Ryan Murphy, it's just you know, please stop immediately. Uh. <laughs> I haven't I couldn't make it through the first episode of Delicate. I yeah. Mean, I haven't gone back to it. I watched we watched a couple apps, but I'm just like part of it's also just school. Like I'm so tired from school stuff the last thing you want to do is suffer through <laughs> ryan murphy like i just get home and i get it's like i ha- i get home relatively late in the day of how mm-hmm. it used to be <laughs> for some school nights and then some work nights so it's just i we watch jeopardy because we're 90 and then i go to mm-hmm. bed i am literally like getting to bed most nights around eight <laughs> And so we could watch something, we could put something on, but I'm going to fall asleep during it. So we're gonna have to watch it again. So I just, you know, you've reached that point. I just keep watching um, Donnie Darko or something over again. (laughs) No. What did I watch this week? Um, Oh, I was watching Lords of Salem. That's right. I was talking about that last night at the party, a little Rob Zombie movie. That movie is so weird, but I just enjoy watching it. And Patricia Quinn is in it. There we go. Back to Rocky Horror. So they tricked her into doing that. I'm rewatching. <laughs> I loved House of Usher so much that I'm rewatching Midnight Mass right now. My, yeah. I don't or know, the 10th time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was going to say. 7th, <laughs> 10th time. I love um, how much you love that. I, it's so great. It's I gotta, so cool. Now it's like my Lenten watch. It's going to be every year around Easter. I'll watch Midnight Mass. <laughs> That's wonderful. But Joshua, I it was so much fun doing that event with you and yeah. so much great feedback. I'm mm-hmm. so happy that we have made this partnership with Lambda. And thank you again to the our panelists, Jesse, who's the dramaturg at the Lambda, uh, who's the, the dramaturg at Diversionary Theater, lifelong right. horror fan. Dana, yeah, we're definitely going to have him on. Yes. Oh, hell Actually, yes. Everybody from the you. panel, but sorry, go ahead. You were um, thanking him. <laughs> Dana, who is the archivist at Lambda Archives, and Ryan, who works there as well, too. They are just brilliant, beautiful, queer horror lovers. And I was talking with Ashley last night, and Ashley was saying that it the most surprising thing from the panel was one of the questions that we got, which was about like or a comment mostly about a, from a guy who was like, I never would have considered Rocky Horror in the realm of horror. I considered it more in the realm of theater kids <laughs> and yeah. all that stuff, which is interesting because and I was talking it out with her and I was like, yeah, I feel like people who want to claim horror things at who want to claim horror things, but don't want to own that. It's a horror thing. will put a different label on it, right? Like they'll put mm. a thriller label or something like that. So I'm glad yeah. that we were able to set the record straight as it were. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny to me. Cause it's, yeah, it's not, 
might not be like terrifying that way. It's it is very in the realm of horror and there's murders in it and cannibalism and I mean, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, that that was funny. But that's why I think it's such a good time and why people really vibe with it because it just yeah. has it's a lot of genres. But anyways, all right, we are going to take a quick break and we will be back to continue our Hammer Horror deep dive with The Curse of Frankenstein. The smell of the video store. I love this place. Do you remember when you could just look at the walls of covers? We had to choose just by looking at the cover and reading the crappy synopsis. It was, you were leaving with one. And the only way to know what new movies were coming out is you actually had to watch the trailers instead of skipping them. Right, we didn't have the internet to look it up. We had one guy named Todd behind the counter that would (laughs) tell us what was good or not. And Todd strangely liked way too many romantic comedies. Yes, but you always knew when the boobies were coming because Todd made sure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and remember all the awful CG we had to put up with in the mid-90s? We talk about that a lot, don't we? Join us on Analog Jones in the Temple Film where we talk about VHS tapes. And we wax nostalgia like none other. Welcome back. All right, so this week we are continuing our Hammer Horror History I just ran out of H's. Yeah. Is there an H word for dive? <laughs> Hammer horror history. Oh, fuck. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, this is why this is why we should write the show before we do it. Anyways, yes, we're continuing with our exploration of Hammer horror films. Hammer horror history hullabaloo. Ah, there we go. Hullabalooza. Uh, <laughs> there we go, kids. You just edit around that, Joe. Figure it out. Anyways, this week we are actually going backwards and starting with the film that is credited for kicking off this resurgence. Hammer Horror had done a picture before called The Quartermass Experiment in 1955. It's like a, I don't know what you call it. I think it's a sci-fi. I've never seen that. Anyways, so that kind of had happened, but this was a film that really resurrected horror and put hammer horror on the map. And that is The Curse of Frankenstein from 1957. This is, again, obviously, it's an adaptation of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. We've got Terrence Fisher on direction, who directed uh, Brides of Dracula, Mm -hmm. which we discussed uh, a couple weeks ago with the lovely Sam Irvin. And we've got Peter Cushing playing Dr. Baron Victor von Frankenstein or whatever the hell their name is, Victor Frankenstein, and Christopher Lee as the creature. And we also have Hazel Court and Robert Urquhart as, yes, <laughs> as Elizabeth. And then Paul Krempe or Krempa, who I agree with you is sort of, it's not exactly a Pretorius role, but it's just that idea of he's a, doing a, a tutor. Lot. Yeah, he's doing a lot of that of, of the person who's like helping Victor create the creature. He's he's Pretorius. He's Igor in the beginning. Yeah, he's yeah, he's just serving a lot of functions. Yeah, the film is written by Jimmy Sangster, who I believe wrote quite a few of the Hammer horror 
pictures that we've been discussing. Yeah, he wrote the Dracula, which we kicked off with. He's he wrote the Mummy. He wrote the Brides of Dracula, mm-hmm. uh, and so he was allowed to reinterpret the Frankenstein novel for this new new picture. Yeah. At a pretty brisk 83 minutes, it moved pretty quickly. Joe, Did it, though? (laughs) Yes, let's dive in. Let's start with your thoughts. Um, It's a little... This movie is a little slow-moving. Similar to how Peter Cushing shows up in Dracula, you don't get him to, like, halfway... You don't get, like, him till halfway through in the same way that you don't get... You don't get the creature until halfway through. Yeah. And I love the I loved all the dialogue. I appreciated all of that. I thought it was a really the what's really cool about these films that we've been watching is that they're decades removed from the original pictures, the universal pictures. Right. And so it's it's interesting to see like old versions of essentially reboots. And yeah. it's I, I keep thinking about it like we're watching when we watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then we watch the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre that came out in the early aughts, right? Right. Thinking about that, about oh, things that we're now in this situation. Hollywood has always been remaking things, or the movie industry has always been remaking things, and to see it not only play out as a remake and a reimagining of the source material and also a beloved film, but also coming from a completely different cultural context. That's just some of the things that now that I've seen a few of these films that are really cool to see. Yeah. I think, I still think so far, my favorite of the ones that I've watched is Brides of Dracula. Yeah. Please go back and listen to our episode with Sam. It's delightful. And Sam is a very delightful human being as well. (laughs) I did enjoy this. I also, I think I really loved it more because Peter Cushing has such a huge role in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's just so fun in his like diction and the way that he plays Victor is so, he's this really weird Victorian fuck boy. And yeah, I don't think it's a rewatch for me, but I did. I think I'm starting to really appreciate the films as we watch more of them. Yeah, they definitely have their own visual style, their own unique kind of approach to the material. Mm-hmm. And, and again, they have to make their own mark, these films. So you have this mm-hmm. movie, Curse of Frankenstein, following the 1930s Frankenstein, which was so iconic and such a enduring image of Frankenstein's monster in that Karloff performance. So it's like, how do you bring something new and fresh and how do you recreate that? Yeah. And yeah, I agree. I actually really think that's a very good point that I hadn't even thought about. We've talked a little bit, skirted that in in our conversations about these films being a rejuvenation of the universal pictures and done through this kind of lens of the Hammer horror film productions. But yeah, to to have experienced that, because people that could have seen this in the, when it came out in 1957, could have seen Frankenstein in the theater. Yeah, And so you wonder if 30 years later, those people are like, ugh, why are we remaking this movie? Like, like, like how we are now when it's, we're digging up and it, yeah. it does feel like that's something that's a, a modern problem, but it's sure. really not. You know, we've been echoing the same stories for centuries. Yeah. And- I wonder if it would, I wonder it could, if 
it could have been more of a, oh, let's see how the British do it. Like from a cultural standpoint, as opposed to a like Hollywood reinventing itself yeah. kind of standpoint in the way that like, oh, we're like rewatching Texas, like doing, going, seeing another Texas Chainsaw Massacre and how it's just building off of that making it more violent. Yeah, and you know, it's funny to compare that as well because when this film came out, it was given that same treatment. So Mm -hmm. you're talking about the the early 2000s remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is extremely bloody, extremely gory when compared to the 1974, Mm -hmm. 75 uh, film, 74, right? Yes. Uh, My dates are starting to start. It's like... (laughs) Only so much room in this brain. This my brain would not be a good candidate for a, a Frankenstein's monster uh, creature. It right depends now. on what you wanted to do with the monster. There you go. This is true. But anyway, so one of those critiques, especially of films that were coming out in that time, these like torture porn, quote unquote, films and lots of gore and lots of blood and you know violence, and we we're all uh, shocked by that. But at yeah. a t- there was a time where this film was shocking in that way. Yeah. Like people were watching it and being, yeah, just shocked by the gore level of it. Yeah. And like, and it's so tame to us. Yeah. And you're getting this film post code, right? Is this a post code? I don't know if it would have applied because it's a British film. Yeah. I'm not sure how, yeah. They had their own codes of things that you could put in films, but I, yeah, I'm not sure. But like this film, Stefan, this film has everything. Right. (laughs) It has cousin incest and it has blood and gore and grave robbing. And I think I told you when Frankenstein goes up on the hangman's post and like cuts the guy down, I'm like, wow, they're really showing you. They're showing you the body. They're right. Yeah, it is. It's much more explicit in, in what it's yeah. doing than you'd been able to get away with before. Yeah. And for it to be like the first one that kicks everything off is really interesting because seeing then knowing that Dracula came after it, I think that Frankenstein is the Curse of Frankenstein is a better film than the Dracula film. Mm. So far, Dracula is not my favorite of yeah. the three that we've watched so far. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I, I definitely think they do. Yeah, I, I do think this is a. I enjoyed this more than Dracula as well. But I mm-hmm. agree with you that Brides was my favorite. Brides of Dracula was my favorite yeah. of the three so far. Yeah, but we still have a couple more to go, so we'll see. What I do think is really interesting in this is they because they want to get this down short. This is they also have to be mindful of the budget. And these are still like low budget films, horror films that luckily it was a huge hit. It it exploded for them, but they just make some interesting decisions with the story. And one of the, one of the things that I find really interesting is how much of a villain they make Frankenstein, like more than Mm -hmm. Dr. The Baron, Victor Frankenstein, more so than in like the novel or subsequent, I feel portrayals of him. Yes. Yes. In <laughs> because again, you have the capable hands of Peter Cushing, yeah. right? Playing uh, playing a very it's someone that you can <laughs> it's someone that you can relate to. And what I loved about what I think differentiates Peter Cushing's portrayal of of Victor as opposed to the original Frankenstein, the original Universal Monster movie Frankenstein is that the he doesn't have nearly 
<laughs> he doesn't have nearly the enthusiasm of the enthusiasm, the manicness, the manic nature. He's very measured yeah, very until controlled. you, yeah. exactly, until he gets to the cell where he's like confessing to the priest, but like the, it's very controlled. Yeah. And where you see that, I wish they did a better job of it, but you'd see it a little bit when you get the flashback of him as a boy inheriting being the last Frankenstein in yeah. the in the world. And you can see that he has this chip on his shoulder. He's very cold. And that was not the manic histrionic nature of Universal Pictures. Yeah. Yeah. He's portrayed as much more shrewd. Because, yes. you know, he sends the letter to get the tutor. Mm-hmm. I keep forgetting. Paul. Was, yeah, Paul. Crimpy. To get him there. And it's he, he misleads him into thinking, like, the Baron is, mm-hmm. like, his father rather than yeah. I'm the himself. Baron. Yeah, exactly. So there is some of that shrewdness there. But, yeah, beyond that, they just make him a lot more villainous and to your point like this fuck boy he's like sleeping with the maid and he's an asshole but he's like very smart and wants to create life and that i thought was a really that really surprised me that all of a sudden he's behind the corner and making out with his his maid and i was like oh justine i know i remember when you gasped you're like what Because it was like, it was, to me, that was an unnecessary thing. He's already, we know that he's engaged to his cousin. We know Mm. that he's been working and stealing bodies and all of these, he's capable of murder, like all of this stuff. But it just seemed unnecessary. Yeah. To add that on top. To add that layer. Yeah. I got to say, when one thing that I really thought was going to happen was I thought he was going to try to kill Paul to get Paul's brain. Yeah. Yeah. I was expecting that too. And because it makes sense. It's okay. You're going to get, try to get the best scientist, the best mind that you can. And then when he killed it, it would, it's a little bit more maniac. It would have been more maniacal, right? To have an eye for an eye. So a brain for a brain. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and even that, like, that whole sequence is really shocking of killing the professor for his brain. Like, mm-hmm. after having this, like, nice meal and they're... It's just so dark, mm-hmm. that whole sequence. It's... It, it's also... I don't think... I don't know if we're meant to believe that he, Paul, also has maybe an affinity for... Mm. Elizabeth, right? That's her name? Yeah, yeah. he's very protective of her. Yeah. Maybe in the way that, because here's the thing, right? Because he is older (laughs) and Elizabeth was younger than Victor when we see that flashback there. I don't want to read into it as like a love interest, intergenerational relationship type of situation. More of wanting to protect the maidenhood and the isolate and protect her purity from Mm. the kind of stain of Victor's experiments. Yeah, that's a very good point because we're not really, that's not really made clear. It's just that he obviously cares. He cares about Victor too. I mean, they watched him grow up and he gave him all this knowledge and worked with him. Sure. And so to see how it's warping him, his power. And yeah, it is is almost like a, I don't know if you want to say like an uncle or like a grandfatherly. Paternal figure of some sort. Yeah, very paternal treatment of her. And he's like warning her very quickly. If something is wrong, you like need to get out of here. You need to like not be with this guy. Yeah. (laughs) And and to say that about like someone who's essentially been his ward. Right. For decades. Right. I just had a thought. Can you come down a journey with me? So we have, we have Victor 
attempting to create life from not only not attempting even resurrection, like attempting like to generate new life right from the different parts, right? And he doesn't see his creation as a perversion. Right. I don't know. And maybe I didn't pick this up or maybe I was on my phone. Let's be completely honest. Was there ever a motive? Is there any some sort of motivation as to why he's doing it? Because the, I feel like the motivation in the in original Frankenstein is that he is trying to he's he is about resurrection, right? He's mm. he there's it's very clear when they're in the in the university or wherever he's looking for the brains that he's trying to it's clear why he's doing what he's doing. I don't know if we get that. I didn't get that sense. Yeah, it's not as, I think, explained. And even in, I feel like a lot of the Frankenstein movies, you have to have a working uh, sense of the novel, of mm. Mary Shelley's novel, and her point of when man seeks to know the secrets of the universe and the secrets sure. of creation, when they take that power from God yeah. or whatever, it's, it's it's just going to be harmful. Yeah. So if anything, I just feel it's like any of that stuff. It's like the audacity of science, right? Yeah. So he's rich, he's powerful, he's smart. And like, why shouldn't he control life? Why shouldn't he have yeah. the secret to immortality? Yeah. This ubermensch. Yes, exactly. Bringing yeah. back, yes, exactly. That sort of co- conversation. So yeah, it's almost as if he... Yeah, I just think that is something inherent in all those stories, which again, in the original novel, and I think in the in the early adaptations, that's like his failing is that he wants to control life. And then when he does, he immediately abandons it. Mm -hmm. He he abandons his monster and or or his child, basically. And that's the next horrible thing that he does. Yeah. So in the same way, it could be said that God has abandoned us. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's lots of readings into that sort of deism. Yeah. But on that, so on that thread, right? Yeah. So you have, there's essentially two creation stories at play here. You have Victor creating the creature right. and going through the process to create the creature. But then you also have Paul being the one who provides the formal education and training for Victor to be the one to create things and then looking upon his creation in disgust and doing what, and then also abandoning him as well. So it's like this cycle of abandonment. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You're a therapist. You (laughs) tell me, do you see what I'm, do you, are you stepping in what I'm putting down here? Um, And, What's really interesting about you bringing that up is this film is called The Curse of Frankenstein Mm -hmm. because apparently there was supposed to be another element to the plot that the first Baron Frankenstein, the first uh, Victor's father, Mm -hmm. uh, the idea was going to be that he had tried already to create life. And so his son was going to be do was like following in his footsteps and tried to complete Uh. his work. Very sins of the father. Yeah, so you get that same cycle of uh, uh, of that sense of that cycle of of abandonment or when you lose like a father figure and kind of what that does to your life and then the sorts of choices that are made. But for whatever reason, they dropped it and they didn't change the title. But the curse was like that, the sin, exactly the sins of the father. Like how they do with, that's like a plot point in Young Frankenstein, right? Is that, Mm -hmm. is Gene... Wilder's, Wilder's character, character yeah. is like the son or his grandfather or whatever had done this kind yeah. of these experiments and he was completing them. But yeah, I definitely get that 
reading. And again, if we're not, I don't find too much of a like a queer angle with this film as, sure. as but that was as present in like the Brides of Dracula that we discussed on our previous episodes. But again, there is something that kind of echoes in this. That's like in the Bride of Frankenstein when you have to, when you have men well, in Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein, the '30s versions, the Universal versions. Sure, something to be said when you have men deciding to change like the course of like natural the natural world, quote unquote, uh-huh. and omitting women and taking them out of the. So it becomes this sort of like very queer parenthood. Yeah. Of, and in this film, Victor and Paul working together to create life. Yeah. Despite the fact that Elizabeth is there to have a, the natural pathway to create life. Mm-hmm. So I think there is, yeah. I, I, and again, that just might be a reading that you cannot escape from with these films. It's not any Frankenstein conversation is going to, I think, have an inherent queerness to it in that way yeah of like life yeah like in bride of frankenstein with pretorius and victor coming together to create her yeah you know it's a um this just echoes the conversation we had then queerness in that you're trying to create life outside of what is quote-unquote natural the normal pathways the quote unquote (laughs) that we have to use that i'm not making any statements about it i'm just saying there's a way to have a baby or you could dig up body parts and make your own yeah <laughs> yeah apparently yeah if you're a frankenstein exactly and you know what honestly this could be just it's it's perhaps it is also a theory about climate change and recycling that <laughs> instead of making this is it's very much adopt don't shop right make your own man don't create one from a child and wait like 20 years for it to become a human being <laughs> an adult human being right, right you have to tr- you have to train it yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it's, it, yeah, it's very interesting to kind of think about that and the role of like fathers in this mm-hmm. particular film and what's being said to that end. Also, we can talk about the monster itself. So we have Christopher Lee playing the creation and I like this because it says that Universal did deny Hammer the right to use Jack Pierce's design for Karloff. So they had to come up with their own with their own thing. And I really like this little quote I found from I, this is I think it's in a bunch of the episodes that we've been doing in this Hammer Horror. There's like a article that's like a history of Hammer Horror. And it talks about, whereas Karloff played it, the creature, with the soul of a troubled child, Lee's creature is agile, brutal, and animalistic. Uh, And then conversely, Cushing's Baron is cultured, brilliant, arrogant, and utterly ruthless, murdering the professor for his brain and using his creature to dispose of his maid, Justine, who is, were led to believe pregnant with his child. There's no reason to, to doubt her. And yeah, I really like, so here, the acting is impeccable. Cushing's dignified performance gave the film a gravitas rarely seen in the genre before or since. I'm not sure exactly about that comment, but it is very, to your (laughs) point, he is, he comes across very controlled and not in the same manic sense that we see in other portrayals. He's far from the stereotypical mad scientist that you're that that you see yeah he's not saying it's alive it's alive he's just 
he's playing it he's playing it like it's fucking shakespeare right yeah. he's playing it for the reality that it is yeah christopher lee's uh performance of the creature uh which is described as agile brutal animalistic um what i really appreciate that about that is it's so different from the karloff performance so we don't have as this is much shorter so it's like they have to tell the story much faster than previous ta- or for whatever reason they just decide to make the film shorter and cut out trim a lot of fat it makes me wonder about how we're supposed to feel about the monster the story is framed by victor's must be on trial or has been put on trial for the death of his maid justine the whole film's told in flashback within what an hour we get this whole story of like creation of life and the monster killing people and getting out and doing doing all of those things so it moves so quickly that it's we don't really have time to develop how we're supposed to feel about the monster are we supposed to have that same sympathy that I feel the 30s film gives, right? Yeah. So this is describing him as, again, this sort of brutal... And he does. He, like, comes to life and immediately starts trying to kill everybody. <laughs> like, he strangles Victor. He breaks out, kills the hermit-type character, the blind hermit, and I presumably also the grandchild. Yeah. We're not shown that, but I assume, especially in the original film, he kills the little girl by throwing her in the lake because of the whole, oh, you're supposed to throw pretty things in the lake. So we're like, we learn to think of him as like a child and, to, and, and that he's afraid and he's been abandoned by his father quote-unquote father figure in Victor. Um, But in this, it just, it moves so quickly. It's like, I'm not sure, for audiences watching it at the time, how they responded. Um, Because his portrayal is so different, in my opinion, from Karloff's. Did you think about that when you were watching it? Like, whether you had sympathy or empathy for the creature? No. I don't think, oddly enough, I don't think I really thought about the creature at all. I think that the one improvement, as you're talking about that and the simil- this, the differences between the Karloff monster and the Lee monster, I think that the improvement that the Hammer film makes is that Frankenstein, there it's mostly about the namesake. Right. In the same way where it's, when people think of Frankenstein, that's the name of the doctor, not the monster. Right. It's become, people think it's the name yeah, of the Yeah, 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 yeah. This film does actually a really good job of no the monster is Frankenstein like the monster is the doctor the bear is Victor and like you just happen to have a monster that he created in the background but we want to focus on the fact that like the truly the person that is truly monstrous is the man right and in that way I didn't even really think about those comparisons how much yeah how much we should what we should feel about the monster no because the, that's the other thing is that there is, he doesn't get a lot of screen time and the screen time that he does get, he is completely acting like it, it's different. You can't even predict it or even begin to understand. It's very out of control. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just something I was thinking of. It's wow. I, I feel like this monster doesn't have the same kind of depth that we get in the car. And again, that's not a criticism because it like, it works the curse. If, if, if we don't have the curse of the inherited science stuff from the, from the father, the curse is, you know, Frank, Victor Frankenstein's 
search for this science and search for the answers to life. And the curse that happens when he gets what he wants is he creates a monster that kills things that he... Not really things that he loves, since Elizabeth does survive in the end. And whether or not he loves her, that's a whole other thing, because he does threaten to kill her if Paul tells people about what he's been up to. But it does. It wreaks havoc. And in the original novel, that is also part of the, the role, because the character, the, the monster, the creation is so angry at Victor that when he does come for him, he asks him to make him a mate, and he refuses. He does kill Elizabeth, and then he... Um, searches for Victor for the remainder of his life. Because I think the book begins and ends a similar frame story in like an Arctic outpost or something where like Victor's like trying to escape from the monster, but it's going to hunt him forever. It's going to always find him uh, and kill the things that he loves. So this is just a very different, it's a less like poetic kind of thing. It's more about, yeah, what kind of happens when you're just a really bad man, right? And he in the end, gets what he deserves within the context of the morality of these kinds of films. And in 50s, morality, right? You're a bad guy. You got some a maid pregnant. You had her murdered. You're murdering left and right. You're you're, you're right. You're a wealthy asshole. And people just he gets what he deserves in the end. So it's just it's a much more simple, streamlined tale yes it is it's much cleaner it doesn't have as much of the moral ambiguity that i think we get from the novel and the 1930s film but i could see why it was a success and it was it was a huge success people uh even though critics were uh, i think uh, against it because it was gory and bloody and all of the things that people pearl clutch and hand ring about but he the people who made this were very successful went on to launch the the hammer horror and (laughs) we have this film to really thank for uh, being the launch pad for that. But again, I do think some of the later films are just more interesting to to look at and discuss. So I'm looking forward to the next couple of, of episodes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The first is that it your whole concept of... I don't know if I remember this from our very first conversation about Frankenstein, the 1930 Frankenstein, but the idea that the first sin, the fr- Victor's mm-hmm. first sin is creating the monster the second sin is abandoning the monster creating is creating life outside of um quote unquote the natural realm outside of god yeah basically wanting to have god-like power yeah and then taking no responsibility and abandoning it i don't know if i thought about that from from the terms of abandonment but it's so interesting you mentioned that because one of my it's not even really horror it's like an action movie van helsing the hugh jackman film van helsing where it puts all the universal monsters pretty much in like this, or at least Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman. Yeah, yeah. And the Frankenstein's, the creature in in that, he talks specifically, it's very eloquently about how his father abandoned him before he had a chance to teach him about the world. Yeah. He feels so abandoned. It really gave a voice to that. And now I think about you mentioning that is making me re- want to go back and watch Van Helsing again just to see where just to see if there's any nuance of that comes through yeah but yeah also it's like spooky season so like I probably just watch Van Helsing yeah hear Kate Beckinsale's awful Eastern European accent yeah Um, and Hugh's he's pretty sexy in that movie he is yeah right yeah that's Um, always worth uh, uh, it's always worth a watch for that yes 
<laughs> last thing is, let's go around the room, and we'll talk about the three things that we would need to make a man. Like, what are the, you know... The three, three ingredients? The three ingredients that you would make sure to, like... And they can be literal, physical things, or it can be, like, I'll make sure that I adjust the brain, the synapses in such a way that he likes... Uh, I don't even know. Gosh, what what what, what would that be? Yeah, but see, I feel like it would just be dumb stuff. I don't know. Like, um, yeah, that, I, well, yeah there we go. Um, <laughs> you know, I like a sense of humor. I want something that makes me laugh. Yes. I think that's important. We'll make sure to pick a creature. Yeah, need somebody who who yeah who definitely makes me laugh. Um, who would enjoy uh taking baths together. <laughs> uh, or showers or whatever I yes. like or hot tubs I enjoy that uh, sitting in water cuddling yes sitting around in water cuddling in water boiled boiling water make sure um, that like whatever we get like you spray it with water resistant film or something because yeah. If you're, if you're stealing corpses too. Yeah. You know, it, it, it limits the amount of baths that you can take, let's be honest. There we go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so stupid. And, and I guess I want some height. You know, I like a tall, I like a taller, tall, tall one. Um, and without getting into, we can go down a whole other filthy feel, route. And that's the thing is that I want to try to, I want to have this conversation without getting filthy about it. Okay. So, so what about you? So I think for me, I definitely want to have someone who is a good listener and an active listener. Yeah. Someone who, like, I can tell them something and then they will remember. That's always a bonus for me, who remembers things that I say. Yeah. Because I have trouble. God. Sometimes I'm like, oh, here comes the therapy. Because sometimes I have trouble thinking that what I have to say has any meaning and people are listening. Right. I would like someone who is an active listener. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Like, well, not me then. Yeah. I'm not listen. I don't listen to anything you say. <laughs> Two hundred sixty something episodes. It's yeah, just you're just a white noise. Yeah, just talking at you. <laughs> uh, so, active listener. Um, I would like someone who is built for comfort and not for speed. Okay. So, like, All right. I'm not someone who is. I realize that I don't want someone who's so muscly because. Then we get into a situation where I'm the fluffiest thing, and uh, like, then I'm like a pillow. You yep. Know? I don't want to be a pillow. I want to want us to hold, embrace, and hold each other. I like it. Um, That's adorbs. So someone who, so my monster is gonna have a little bit extra. And I guess the third thing would be a sense of humor as well. No, I would. I want someone with a sharp wit. So even if they are. Even if they are not, even if they're like introverted, which I feel like I'm going to end up with someone who's uh, introverted. Yeah. They would need to be able to have a sharp wit as well. So there you go. I like that. Yeah, that makes sense. That's very sweet. So if you have all three of those things, info at frightschool.com. <laughs> Joe now accepting applications. applications. Please, so that way I don't rob any graves to make this person. If right. you exist, make yourself known. I love it. Thanks, Joshua, for humoring me. 
Thank you as we go down this like wild hammer horror path. It's been very interesting seeing these films and chatting about, again, things that we did early on in, in Fright School history or talking about 1931's Dracula, talking about the, the first adaptation of to the Universal Frankenstein and seeing how those themes continue to echo in horror films and the influence. And, and again, it's neat just to see how hammer horror push the elevation of those characters a little bit further, creating more enduring iconographies of Frankenstein and Dracula and Van Helsing and, you know, and cementing the roles of, or the careers of Christopher Lee and, and Peter Cushing in particular uh, in what we've discussed so far. So, yay. All right. I think that about does it for this, uh, for this episode. So, uh, Thank you for listening, dear listener. I hope you're having a great spooky season so far. Halloween is on the horizon. All the things. All the spooky, spooky things. The veil is about to be pierced. It is. All right, Joe. Good night. To go back to Christopher Lee's performance of The Creature, which is described, again, as agile, brutal, animalistic, what I really appreciate about that is it's so different from the Karloff performance. So mm. you don't have as, this is much shorter, so it's like they have to tell the story much faster sure. than, than previous, ta- or for whatever reason, they just decide to make the film shorter and cut out, trim a lot of fat. It makes me wonder about how we're supposed to feel about the monster. Mm-hmm. The story is framed by Victor's must be on trial or has been put on trial for the death of his maid, Justine. The whole film's told in flashback within, what, an hour? <laughs> we get this whole story of creation of life and the monster killing people and getting out and doing doing all of these things. It moves so quickly that it's we don't really have time to develop how we're supposed to feel about the monster. Mm. Um, are we supposed to have that same sympathy that I feel the 30s film gives? Right? Yeah. So this is describing him as, again, this sort of brutal... And he does. I mean, he like comes to life. And immediately starts trying to kill everybody. Yep. <laughs> like he strangles Victor. He breaks out, kills the hermit type character, mm-hmm. the blind hermit, and I, presumably also the the child. child. Yeah, we're not shown that, but I assume, especially in the original film, he kills the little girl by throwing her in the lake because of the whole like, oh, you were supposed to throw pretty things in the lake. So we're like, we learn to like think of him as like a child, and to and that he's afraid, and he's been abandoned by his father quote-unquote father figure in, in Victor. But in this, it just, it moves so quickly, it's, I'm not sure, for audiences watching at the time, yeah, how they responded. Because his portrayal is so different, in my opinion, from Carlos. Yeah. Did you think about that when you were watching, whether you had sympathy or empathy for the creature? No, I don't think... Oddly enough, I don't think I really thought about the creature at all. I think that the one improvement, as you're talking about that and the similar the this the differences between the Karloff monster and the Lee monster, I think that the improvement that the Hammer film makes is that Frankenstein there it's it's mostly about the namesake. In the same way where it's when people think of Frankenstein, that's the name of the doctor, not the monster, but it's become, people think it's the name of the monster. I think this film does actually a really good job of, no, the monster is Frankenstein. The monster is the doctor, is the Baron. 
is Victor. And like, you just happen to have a monster that he created in the background. But we want to focus on the fact that the truly, the person that is truly monstrous is the man. And in that way, I didn't even really think about those comparisons to Karloff. No, I, because the that's the other thing is that there is he doesn't get a lot of screen time, and the screen time that he does get, he is he is completely acting like it, it's diff- you can't even predict it or even begin to understand. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was just something I was thinking of. It's wow, mm. I feel like this monster doesn't have the same kind of depth that we get. In, yeah, in the, and again, that's not a criticism because. It, the curse if, if, if we don't have the curse of the inherited science stuff from the from the father the curse is Franken, Victor Frankenstein's search for this science and search yeah. for the answers to life and the curse that happens when he gets what he wants is he creates a monster that kills things that he not really things that he loves since Elizabeth does survive in the end and whether or not he loves her that's a whole other thing because he does threaten to kill her if uh, mm-hmm. Paul tells people about but it does, it wreaks havoc. And in the original novel, that is also part of the, the role because the character, the, the monster, the creation is so angry at Victor that when he does come for him, he asks him to make him a mate and he refuses, he does kill Elizabeth and then he searches for Victor for the remainder of his life. Yeah. Because I think the book begins and ends a similar frame story in an Arctic outpost or something where... Victor's trying to escape from the monster, but it's going to hunt him forever. It's going to always find him yeah. and kill the things that he loves. Yeah. This is just a very different, it's a less poetic kind of thing. It's yeah. more about, yeah, what kind of happens when you're just a really bad man, right? And yeah. he, in the end, gets what he deserves yeah. within the context of the morality of these kinds of films. And yeah. the 50s morality, right? Yeah. You're a bad guy. You got some a maid pregnant. You had her murdered. You're murdering left and right. You're you're, you're robbing graves. Right. You're a wealthy asshole that just he gets what he deserves in the end. So it's just a, it's a much more simple streamlined. Yeah. It's a little cleaner. <laughs> yes, it is. It's much cleaner. It doesn't have as much of the yeah. moral Im- ambiguity that I think we get from the novel and the 1930s film. Yeah. But I can see why it was a success. It was. It was a huge success. People, even though critics were, I think, against it, because you know, it was gory and bloody and all of the things that sure. people hurl, clutch, and hand ring about. But he, the people who made this were very successful, went on to launch the, the Hammer Horror. And <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we have this film to really thank for being a launch pad for that. But again, I do think some of the later films are just more interesting to, to look at and discuss. So I'm yeah. looking forward to the next couple of, of episodes. Yeah. Can I bring up two things before we go? The first is that it your whole concept of... I don't know if I remember this from our very first conversation about Frankenstein, the 1930s Frankenstein, but the idea, right, that like the first sin, the fr- Victor's first sin is creating the monster. The second sin is abandoning the monster, right? Is creating life outside of, quote unquote, the natural realm, outside of God. Yeah. 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 And then after doing that, taking no responsibility and abandoning it. I I don't know if I thought about that from the terms of like in abandonment, 
But it's so interesting you mentioned that because one of my, it's not even really horror. It's like an action movie, Van Helsing, Hugh Jackman, the Hugh Jackman film Van Helsing, where it puts all the universal monsters pretty much in like this, or at least Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman. And the Frankenstein's, the creature in that, he talks specifically, it's very eloquently about how his father abandoned him before he had a chance to teach him about the world. And he feels so abandoned. It really gave a voice to that. And now I think about you mentioning that is making me want to go back and watch Van Helsing again, just to see where just to see if there's any uh, nuance of that comes through. Mm. But yeah, also it's like spooky season. So like I will <laughs> probably just watch Van Helsing because I want to hear Kate Beckinsale's awful Eastern European accent. He is, especially towards the end when the shirt's off. Right. Uh, uh, it's always worth a watch for that. <laughs> yes. The last thing is let's go around the room and we'll talk about the three things that we would need to make a man. Like, what are the, the, three, three ingredients. the three ingredients that you would make sure to like, and they can be literal, physical things, or it can be like, I'll make sure that I adjust the brain, the synapses in such a way that he likes to watch movies, like something like that. See, I feel like it would just be dumb stuff. I don't know. Yeah, this is a dumb question, Joshua. You know, like a sense of humor. I want something that makes me laugh. Yes. That's important. We'll make sure to pick a creature who has a a brain that has a sense of humor. Yeah, who definitely makes me laugh. Who would enjoy taking baths together. Okay. Showers or whatever. Yeah. You know, or hot tubs. Sitting in water, yes. Yeah, sitting, sitting around water, cuddling in water. Uh, yes. <laughs> Boil, boiling water. We got to make sure that whatever we get, you spray it with water-resistant film or something, because if you're stealing corpses, too, it limits the amount of baths that you can take. Let's be honest. There we go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I guess I want some height. You know. Oh yeah. Tall. Tall. Taller. Yeah. All right. Okay. Without getting into, we can go down a whole other. I know. I know. I and that's the thing is that I want to try to. I want to have this conversation without getting filthy about it. So I think for me, I definitely want to have someone who is a good listener and an active listener. Someone who like I can tell them something and then they will remember. That's always a bonus for me. So who remembers things that I say because I have trouble. God sometimes i'm like oh here comes the therapy because sometimes i have trouble like thinking that what i have say has any meaning and people are listening so i would like someone who is an active listener <laughs> you that was a great <laughs> not me then yeah <laughs> yeah 260 something episodes and still not a damn thing yeah just talking at you so active listener I would like someone who is built for comfort and not for speed. So not someone who is, I I realize that I don't want someone who's so muscly because 
then we get into a situation where I'm the fluffiest thing and then I'm like a pillow. I don't want to be a pillow. I want to want us to hold, embrace and hold each other. So someone who, so my monster is going to have a little bit extra. And I guess the third thing would be a sense of humor as well. Uh, no, I would. I want someone with a sharp wit. So even if they are, even if they are not, even if they're like introverted, which I feel like I'm going to end up with someone who's uh, introverted, they would need to be able to have a sharp wit as well. So there you go. I like that. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. That's very sweet. So if you have all three of those things, info at frightschool.com applications please so that way i don't rob any graves to make this person if you exist make yourself known thanks joshua for humoring me well thank you as we go down this like wild it's been very interesting seeing these films and chatting about uh again things that we did early on in in fright school history Mm -hmm. talking about 1031's dracula talking about you know the first adaptation of the universal frankenstein and seeing how those Themes continue to echo in, in, in horror films and the influence. And again, mm-hmm. just to see how Hammer Horror pushed the elevation of those characters a little bit further, creating more enduring iconographies of Frankenstein and Dracula and Venice mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and cementing the roles of the, or the careers Christopher Lee and, and Peter Cushing in particular discussed so far. Hey, oh, I think that about does it for this for this episode. Thank you for listening, dear listener. I hope you're having a great spooky season so far. Halloween is on the horizon. All the things, all the spooky, yeah. spooky things. The veil is about to be pierced. All right, Joe. Good night. <laughs>《Fright School》is produced by Joshua Napier and Joe Farron. Our intro was edited by Davy Boy Productions. Our logo was designed by Jamie Channel Guzman. Episodes are edited and engineered by Joe Farron. *Fright School is produced in terrifyingly beautiful San Diego, California. Listening to the Geekscape Network.